today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We've certainly talked a lot about uh, the two Michaels on this show, and uh, certainly even just as uh, as early as yesterday, over 820 some odd days that uh, the two Michaels have been jailed uh, in China, now uh, awaiting trial. Uh, and, and hopefully something can be done before that, because usually with a trial in China, it's a 99% conviction rate. And once they get to that situation, it will be uh, a lot harder, obviously, uh, to get them back. That being said, there is uh, new information on the horizon and in an interesting article in the Globe and Mail as uh, Canada looks to uh, Joe Biden to free the two Michaels. However, it looks like that is still going to take uh, some time. Let's bring in Nelson Wiseman, professor with the Department of Political Science. University of Toronto and is with us now. Nelson, good to have you back again. Hope you're doing well. Yes, I am. Thank you, Scott. So what are your thoughts in regard to uh, the United States and Joe Biden and what they can do to help us with the two Michaels? Well, it's a real challenge, isn't it? I'm not sure. Uh, the reason the story ran in today's Globe is because um, the new American Secretary of State and their National Security Advisor are meeting with the Chinese tomorrow in Alaska. Mm-hmm. And it's their first high-level one-on-one meeting. They'll be meeting with the Chinese foreign minister. So you've got... And uh, so Canadian uh, hopes are raised because uh, Biden indicated in his last talk with, uh, with Trudeau, without mentioning the names of the two Michaels, that they're opposed to essentially hostage diplomacy, which is what the Chinese are practicing. But I think the Americans and the Chinese have much bigger fish to fry in terms of their bilateral relationship than uh, the issue of the two Michaels. I think that issue is going to actually be determined more by the um, American Justice Department and the kind of... uh, pressure or or representations that Canada can make to them in terms of how this might be resolved. Um, you, you talked about uh, there's bigger fish to fry for these two. How far down the list is the two Michaels? Oh, they're, they're way down the list to begin with. They're not Americans. Yeah. I mean, uh, just the other, uh, just yesterday, uh, a group of Americans were beaten up by Chinese police and temporarily held. That's a story in today's Washington Post. That has some traction in the United States, and the job of the American government is to defend uh, American citizens, as it is for Canadian government vis-a-vis its own citizens. So the two Michaels aren't uh, Americans. The other thing I would say is that the hostage diplomacy that the Chinese conduct from time to time Canada's hardly an exception. In fact, it was just last October that the Chinese were threatening to arrest and, uh, Americans because the, uh, the Americans were uh, arresting or on the verge of arresting five Chinese scholars who they claimed had lied about their visa applications, that they'd actually worked for the Chinese military. When I met with the Japanese consul a few months ago, I mentioned the case of the two Michaels, and he just said, oh, they do that to us all the time. And that's what the South Koreans uh, say as well. So this is de rigueur in terms of Chinese policy. It's nothing new. And if I recall correctly, about eight, ten years ago, there was a young couple that operated a, a restaurant in northern China. They were also held uh, 
because uh, Canada had done something that had upset the Chinese. We weren't holding anybody, but it was some other element of policy or public administration. So, uh, you know, their attitude is, look, uh, uh, this is one way to get your attention, and it certainly has gotten the attention of Canadians. I mean, when you open up the Globe and Mail every single day, they list the number of days that the two Michaels have been there. So why wouldn't this be a higher priority for even China, considering this is all tied to uh, the Huawei CFO being detained on a U.S. extradition warrant? Uh, At the end of the day, they may not care about the two Michaels, but this is a trigger for the Huawei CFO, who is obviously royalty in China. So why would China not be trying to do more to get the United States to drop this or do something that Canada doesn't want to do or won't do? Okay, that's a very good point. Uh, to begin with, uh, the, uh, the, the whole Huawei story in terms of the Americans, the, the door is already, uh, is, has already been shut to them. When, when Madame Monk was arrested, there was still uh, the idea that Huawei would have access uh, to the United States commercially. And actually, uh, Canada is the only country of the five eyes, the, 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 the five Western countries that share intelligence, that hasn't firmly shut the door. Huawei, of course, is interested in getting um, uh, the, the CFO, the daughter of the founder of Huawei, back. But her conditions are not impossible. And what is it that they can do to the Americans? What, what is it that the Americans are going to do for them? Uh, you know, uh, so the, it, it, the, the bigger issues, when I say they're bigger fish to fry, is the whole question of Taiwan, uh, of military, of potentially dangerous military engagements in the South China Sea. Um, uh, from the American point of view, they want to know if they can cooperate with the Chinese on climate change, because that seems to be a priority for Biden. Uh, there are the trade issues which aren't resolved, which is what... Uh, which is what really drove Trump in the Trump administration. Um, so it, it, it's not I, it's not the Chinese that are going to bring up the subject of um, of the American extradition request. I, I don't think um, and that would they could. You know, I mean, who knows what's going to happen behind those closed doors? But that isn't, from what I can see, their highest priority either. In fact, the, the Canadians. Have been dealing with the Chinese. They've now allowed uh, Madame Meng's relatives to come to Canada so that they can visit her, and in return, Canada has allowed our ambassador, our consular officials, to see the two Michaels. I think just once a month, but they've gotten a little more access. So there are things going on, but ultimately, this is not going to be resolved. Well, we don't exactly know how it'll be resolved. It will be resolved, and it might be resolved in the next few months. We're not there. In fact, the the story in today's Globe says that the Americans are doing a complete review and reset of China-U.S. Mm-hmm. relations, and they don't expect to have that review completed for four months. So we'll see. And even when that review is done, that review isn't going to mention the two Michaels. 
And there doesn't appear to be much chance at this point that this case will be tossed out by the U.S. That they'll, unless there's some sort of agreement between China and the United States, but that's that doesn't right. seem to be a priority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's right. I think uh, they could make a deal. Uh, it's in there somewhere. I'm not sure it's the uh, item they're going to talk about tomorrow. Uh, I don't think it's top of the uh, agenda for either country, quite frankly, but that doesn't mean that it isn't on the agenda of either. Uh, And um, so uh, the Americans care more about, well, let's see what they care about. They, They can't, you know, look, one of the big differences here is the difference between our uh, politico-judicial system and the Chinese system. Our system has checks and balances. Our courts are independent of our governments, and that's the case in the United States, at least in theory, and in practice more or less as well. In China, they are not. As you pointed out, if actually you go to trial, you're going to be convicted. No ifs, ands, or buts. Uh, in Canada, in U.S., you're likely to be convicted, but it's not 100% certain, and you can appeal, and and you may win on an appeal. These things happen often. In China, it's different, and they don't appreciate the difference. They can't believe that our courts are not under the thumb of our political rulers. As a, a Chinese student came up and asked me in class last year, he said, look, doesn't the Minister of Justice have the power to release uh, Madam Meng, wow. and lo and behold, he does. But that's never been exercised that I'm familiar with in Canada. What's it, it like for you to have that discussion with a student, Nelson? Well, you know, it was because oh, I'm yeah. just surprised. I, I'm just astounded listening to you. What, I mean, what is that experience like? Well, it was interesting. Look, a large number of the students at the University of Toronto, but this is more in the hard sciences are students that are from China. They're probably the largest single group of foreign students. Now, this year they're not because we're doing this online learning. The university is. I haven't been teaching this year in front of a class. And that, but, but there are deep divisions, actually, I noticed among students, Chinese students on campus, between those Chinese students who were born in Canada and or Chinese students that have been here and living here since they were little kids, and Chinese students that have come over from China to study. You know, when you look at them, hey, they look Chinese, just like we look Western to them when we're there, but we can be very different. So, you know, I, I've seen, I, one of them told me, hey, uh, that one of his friends said, let's go and beat up these other Chinese because of their different attitudes toward Hong Kong. So you've got deep divisions in the Chinese community. And, and we've seen it here in the streets of Toronto. We've had demonstrations against by Chinese against the Chinese Communist Party, and by supporters of the Chinese. Party. And we've certainly we've cer- certainly heard lots of, uh, of stories, lots of evidence of Chinese Canadians who are being pressured by yes, those yes. in China because they're not agreeing with the with the homeland. Yeah, or because they're speaking up. Yeah, and that scene. So you also have a different view, not just of. Not only does the political and judicial systems work differently, but you have a different uh, view of of society and who belongs to society and what it means to be a part of a society. We're a much more individualist culture. They are a much more collectivist culture. I've met Chinese students here 
and I say to them, well, you're going to get a four-year degree here. This is a young, bright young woman I met last year. And I said, you know, you'll be able to stay in Canada. And she said, no way. She's going back to China. Was she going back to China so that she could get further ahead? No, it was to build up the Chinese nation. So how would they justify coming here to do well, that? Well, uh, uh, that's a good question. The reason they justify it is because we have excellent institutions. If you look historically... Would they not learn from that and why and how we have that? Well, yeah, they are learning from that. They are using it. And they've turned to Canada and the United States and Britain and other Western countries to partner with their universities and to start integrating. Look, historically, the Chinese method of study was simply memorizing and being deferential. The Western style is quite different. It's to, you know, have competing viewpoints, challenge, be adversarial. That's not the Chinese, historically, the Confucian or, or Chinese tradition. And, and we're now in the 21st century, and even in the 20th century, we have more integration. So when uh, can, uh, Westerners go to live in China, we can see, okay, they're, they're different, but we have to start adjusting to how they operate. And when they come here, they, they might be bewildered, and they start seeing parts of our culture many of which they dislike completely. I mean, look, they laugh at us. They say, look, the the virus, which you talked about earlier, started in China. They don't have a problem now. They mopped it up in a month. Well, they used draconian measures, which just couldn't be used here. So they think, okay, who succeeded? Other One student told me last year, hey, I look at our infrastructure in China. I look at the infrastructure in Canada. Canada looks like a third world country when I compare our airports or our trains. And, uh, mm. and, and So and yet still, then, then why the interest to interweave themselves here. into our countries? I mean, no, no, you know, whether no. other countries, whether it's, you know, education, medicine, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. politics. Because, because we've got the, the, the skill sets. You know, I, I was uh, the uh, a chairman in an air. Uh, I was chairing a PhD exam. It was in geography. This guy was from China. He was doing his thesis on Canada's forests, and uh, so you know, I listened. As a chairman, I, I'm not involved. Uh, you, the experts were there: his supervisor, the external examiners, internal examiners. And I thought, gee, this is interesting. It was clear he was going to go back to China. He learned all these things about forestry, managing forests, you know, I I don't know the details, it's not my field to study, and I could see how come he came here. They have forests in China too, and they got problems there, because he was getting all kinds of technical expertise and capacity, and and that's valuable for them, and and actually that's what they're engaged in. Uh, This is a much bigger issue. uh, Here's an item that's going to be brought up tomorrow. It's going to be cybersecurity. That's near the top of their list in negotiations, as well as uh, avoiding military uh, combat. We're in a Cold War, and uh, so you've got espionage that's going on. And, and, you know, and it's affected us as well. I mean, remember Nortel? Why do you think yeah. Nortel disappeared? Yeah. <laughs> I think it disappeared because uh, of hacking of cyber espionage. 
Well, many, many, many will relate to uh, Huawei's success to Nortel. Uh, yeah, because, well, and again, it's not. It's from what I understand, uh, it's more of a dropping of the ball on Nortel's part, uh, you know, and and they're just taken advantage of without being aware of the threat. But yeah, it, it's it, it has has. Are, have we let the Chinese Communist Party become too interwoven into Canada? Um, well, it is a major concern for the for CSIS, for the intelligence agency. But when you say have we let it, it's not like. We know exactly what's going on. There are attempts to monitor it. Uh, we're not as effective as countering it, because uh, unlike the Chinese, who can just turn around and arrest people with no grounds, it's a real challenge to our legal system, because we might know that all kinds of nefarious things are going on, such as bullying people, intimidating them, threatening their their families back in China. But But if you arrest them, you you have to charge them with the crime, and you're going to have a case, and uh, it's very difficult to prove. Whereas in 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 China, hey, you don't even need a case. Hmm. So Nelson Wiseman has been with us, professor with the Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, uh, talking about Canada looking to the U.S. to help free. Uh, the two Michaels that have been jailed in China for uh, well over 820 days at this point. Nelson, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, lots of chatter, obviously, about uh, our changing, uh, ongoing changing relationship with China. And obviously, the Beijing Olympics have become a topic of discussion. And now the majority of Canadians think Canada should boycott uh, the Beijing Olympics coming up uh, next year. And uh, you know, obviously, many have questioned, uh, considering the two Michaels, considering uh, the way things are and what's been going on in Hong Kong and such. Um, should we be supporting this event and, and and standing behind the pomp and pageantry of it all? Personally, I'm more concerned about the safety of the athletes, the safety of of the administration and, and everyone else that has to go and travel with them, uh, considering, you know, they they plucked the two Michaels off the street uh, just randomly. So uh, fascinating information coming out of the Angus Reid Institute. Let's bring in Dave Korzynski, Research Director with the Angus Reid Institute and is with with us now dave thank you for the time i hope you're doing well yeah thanks scott how's everything going out there can't complain same old same old you know uh it's been consistent we might as well say that <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. uh this is fascinating because we have talked i remember talking uh, several weeks months ago about how uh the attitude that uh canada and the world has uh, on china is rapidly deteriorating uh but it's interesting uh, watching in in the numbers that you've got just the the view of china the number of canadians who hold a favorable view on china continues to fall and you've got numbers dating back as far as 2005 uh when uh 58% of canadians had a favorable view of china and then slowly it starts to deteriorate till about 2015 and then we see 2016 17 with a slight increase going back up to 48% and then just nose diving uh from that point right till uh last year and this year how do you explain the rise between 2015 and 2017 yeah, you know, that's interesting. There there really was a, I think you got a new government that came in in 2015 and said that they were going to, you know. Bingo, that's it. That was uh, that was when Trudeau was elected, was it not? Yes, it would yeah, have been the first time, yeah. 
Yeah, and I think there was an idea that, okay, we can have this relationship with China. We're going to, you know, we're, we're going to prioritize the, the rule of law and human rights. That's something that we've got in here that's really important to Canadians. Um, and I think there was a sense that the relationship was going a little bit more positively than it had under the Harper government. Some of that is just, you know, people who are non-conservative saying, okay, well, now now the relationship with China is something that we can be um, excited about. It's we can. There's some sort of dual benefit that we can derive from this relationship, even if it's a country that, you know, maybe we don't quite understand how its government works or uh, some of the, the policies that it has around, you know, social media censorship and some of the things that I think um, people have had a hard time with China over, over a number of years. Um, and then there was this sense that, you know, 2018 hits and uh, we we get this situation where we hold on to Meng Wanzhou at the request of the United States, even though we're quickly thrown under the bus by Donald Trump uh, for doing so. And, and then um, we, we start to see this relationship really deteriorate because in retaliation for that, they um, hold on to, to two people who are, are evidently being charged with stealing state, state secrets, which really does appear to be um, kind of trumped up charges that are, our government has called baseless and a lot of other less um, involved parties have called baseless just on objective views. And we really see the relationship tank there. So as you mentioned, it, it was 48% in 2017. So basically half of Canadians saying that they viewed the country favorably and now we're down to 14% two years in a row, which is the, the, the smallest number that we've seen recorded. And really is, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's hard to get lower than that. Um, you know, we're, you're seeing those, those are people who view the country a little bit more favorably, maybe have, maybe have some relationships um, that, that kind of uh, make the relationship a little bit more positive for them. But it's quite, it's hard to get lower than that. So uh, there was some chatter a few months ago about the Beijing Olympics. Uh, it doesn't seem to be gaining much traction now, and they are getting closer and closer. But Canadians uh, should bo- uh, boycott the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing. Uh, tell us what your results showed. Yeah, they're, they're really, um, they showed that there's, there's quite a bit of uh, support for that. You know, we asked people, we walked them through some of the issues and said, you know, how do you feel about China? What is what is the relationship? Should we should we focus on, uh, you know, improving economic ties with China, those types of things? And, and then we asked this one, you know, should Canadian athletes just based on all these these events that are going on? Um, should they go? Should they boycott? There's been some discussion of that in the United States and and targeted boycotts. You know, Mitt Romney was talking about it recently. Um and 55% of, of Canadians say that they, they would support a boycott. They don't think that athletes and coaches and fans should go. They should make a statement, um, particularly about the treatment of the Muslim Uyghur ethnic groups in, in the country. Um, and some of these other issues around the coronavirus and around the, the treatment of the two Canadians that they're holding. So there's all of these issues swirling, I think, that kind of contribute to that. Only 27% of Canadians disagree and say that they would they should send uh, the team regardless. You know, it, it's a, a non-political event, which really is is kind of hilarious when you think about. Nothing is non-political in Beijing. Nothing is non-political in Beijing. You you were saying that obviously people were concerned about uh, COVID, concerned about human rights issues, the Uyghurs and such. Is it that, or is it their own safety? Considering they plucked the two Michaels off the street for no reason. 
Yeah, I think that that's an aspect of it too. Is that if you've got you know, it's a government that that has clearly um, shown that they they will do something like that uh, in retaliation. So we don't know what the the trial of Fermin Wanjou, the extradition hearing, is going to produce. And you know, if there's a situation where the Canadian or the the BC Supreme Court decides that okay, extradition is is uh, appropriate. Say we do hand uh, the executive over to the United States. I think that there's a case that this could ex- escalate. And, you know, people—that's a scary thing to think about when you've got two people who've been held in detainment for two years now with really uh, very little uh, opportunity to speak to anybody. Um, it's it's scary to think of what that situation will devolve into. And I think that there is a safety aspect of it that is. It's tough now, but it could be even worse at the time. So I think this is something where the the resolution of that really will determine um, the, the likelihood that we do send a full team or that there is some sort of uh, protest or a targeted boycott. You know, you bring up a very valid point here, Dave, and you say worse at that time, meaning when the games are actually set to begin, because you think about the course, uh, the timeline that the case is taking for uh, the Huawei CFO and the start of these Olympics. This is all going to intersect at once. This is all going to come together at roughly the same time. So, again, what happens could greatly change this situation, even at the last minute. Yeah, and and you know it's hard to to go into a games and say you know we'll come, but you there has to be a a contingency in place where you're not going to hold any of our our athletes or coaches or representatives as political prisoners. Like that's that's a very difficult discussion to have ahead of a sporting event. Um, so with those type of things kind of swirling around, I think it would make it a, a difficult decision for some people. Um, and you know we asked that question and we said is there a, the potential to have a, a positive relationship with China without having uh, Michael Spavor and Michael Covert released? And you know, 75% of Canadians say that they actually don't think that they, they think that it's contingent upon them being released if we are to kind of resume a positive relationship with China. So it's, it really is seen as a barrier to any sort of productive relationship. And we've seen how it has been, um, kind of economically dampening, you know, China uh, withheld our, our canola um, exports yeah. for a while, weren't ex- weren't uh, taking pork exports for a while, and coming up with reasons for these that really did seem politically motivated. So we'll see where it goes. But for most Canadians, they say that, you know, that we need to get our two guys back and, and then we'll go from there. Are you surprised that the two Michaels are having that much of an impact, and, and thankfully so, on the Canadian people? This story is resonating with them, and as you mentioned, uh, 75% saying that until that is resolved, there's no way these two can have a, uh, no way these two countries, there's no way these two countries can have a strong relationship. So it appears as if China underestimated, uh, taking these two hostages and the impact it would have. Yeah, you know, we're a relatively small country, so it doesn't take a lot to, to, to get the attention of people in, in such a high-profile incident. And we've had two years now of, of um, you know, people have had the opportunity to read stories uh, about the Meng Wanzhou case, and then you see these names and you see the two Michaels. And over the course of two years, at some point, I think people have figured out who those people are and read a little bit about their stories. Um, and 
it's notable that even, you know, among people who, who tend to follow the news a little bit more closely are older Canadians, both men and women. The number who say to who hold that view jumped from 75% to, you know, closer to 90%. Um, mm. So it's being dropped down a little bit by people who aren't paying attention. Um, you know, young women, 28% of them say they, they don't know enough about the case. So among people who are actually following it, the opinion's even stronger. So that it, it really is resonating once people are, um, they, they hear about it, they engage with the story and, and they hear what's happened. I think it, it's, uh, it really is kind of ruffling people and, and they, they see it as, you know, as, as I mentioned, as another in a series of these kind of human rights abuses or abuses of the rule of law that are, they're kind of identifying with the Chinese government. Do you see any of these results changing? I mean, this just seems to keep plummeting. Do you think the Chinese Communist Party is getting the message that, uh, if not already, they're becoming public enemy number one? Yeah, well, and, and the question, too, is, is do are we a big enough factor in their, you know, economic equation or however yeah. they're, they're viewing things to, to really care? Or are, are they going to use Canada as a, a smaller country, granted, our second biggest trading partner, um, are they going to set an example with with Canada? Because these are issues that are popping up in relationships with other countries too. Um, you know, China, the the tentacles of of the, kind of the Chinese machine, the economic power, um, are all over the globe, and these are issues that they're having with other countries. Uh, so, is there a high profile one where they're saying, you know, we're not going to let you um, extradite representatives of the government? Um, and, and maybe this is where they put their foot down. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's scary to think about those things, but um, in, in kind of a pragmatic realpolitik sort of situation, um, these are discussions that we have to have, and I think that's why so many people are, are seeing the news of this story and why it's not changing. So, um, yeah, I think the next year is going to be very interesting, and hopefully for the Michael, there's some sort of resolution uh, much quicker than that, um, with a, a trial evidently starting soon from, from what we're hearing from uh, state media, uh, there's, there's a lot to, to decide here that will kind of define a lot of the relationship going forward. Dave Korsinski with us, Research Director at the Angus Reid Institute. The majority of Canadians think Canada should boycott the Beijing Olympics next year. Thanks, Dave. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah, you too, Scott. We'll catch you later. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, plans by the federal government to hike the har- uh, carbon taxes to $170 per ton by 2030 will cause widespread layoffs and restrict economic gl- uh, growth, so says a new study from the Fraser Institute, a right-leaning think tank. Uh, could lose 200,000 uh, 200, jobs by 2030, mostly in Quebec and Ontario, if uh, Ontario f- Ottawa follows through with plans to raise the levy. Also cause a 2.1% drop in Canadian GDP, or roughly $44 billion in losses in today's currency. To talk more about all of this, Dan McTagg with us, former Liberal MP, consumer affairs critic, analyst, ga- uh, uh, what is the, sorry, Dan, I'm sorry, what is, I don't have it in front of me, what is the organization again, Canadians yeah. for Affordable Energy? That's correct. Thanks. I'm sorry about that. No worries. Dan, no worries. good to have you here. Your thoughts on this latest report? Well, the report, I think, confirms some of the concerns we had about the other and second carbon tax on the clean fuel standard, uh, which pointed out that uh, there would be a significant loss uh, both to the economy uh, and cost to consumers. Uh, and, of course, uh, another common theme, uh, the federal government simply comes out, blurts, makes these decisions, blurts out some defense doesn't have the data to back it up, and if it does, it's hiding it. 
And then when they do finally come out with the data, it confirms the, the worst suspicion. So I, I, I sense that all this wonderful stuff about, uh, first of all, it is a broken promise to go from 50 to $170 a ton. Uh, is going to have a negative impact on everyone. Of course, it's really hard to make that argument these days, Scott, because no one really cares until they actually see the damage. They see their utility bills going through the roof. They see the cost of living going crazy. They see 99,000 jobs lost in Ontario. They see a federal government incurring a $24 billion a year debt at a time when it's been incurring you know, 10 times that amount, uh, given its fight against covid for a lot of people, this just doesn't really ring. It doesn't, doesn't, you know, it doesn't connect. But it does connect in the sense that all of these things are going to start to become more and more severe on the bottom line for everybody. And of course, they're not, uh, as the study pointed out, which confirms what a lot of other studies have done. The rebate system is a bit of a scam. Uh, yes, you get some back, but not all of it back. And depending on variations in colder temperatures uh, or how many people you have in the house or how warm you want to keep, uh, these uh, rebates uh, cover only a part of it. And they certainly don't cover the secondary part, which is things like food and other uh, uh, elements and things that we buy uh, that are also affected uh, negatively by uh, the rising price as a, as a result of this arbitrary carbon tax. So all in all, uh, I think an eye-opener, but uh, again, a shocking display of just how willing the, uh, the federal Liberal government is prepared to go uh, with pushing an agenda without telling Canadians the truth about how much it's going to cost them. You know what, Dan, you, you bring up a very valid point, and I get this all the time when I do simulcast shows with the West, um, and, and they ask me, are Ontarians not interested in this issue? And honestly, Dan, they're not. No. They're not interested in this issue. And, you know, I, I remember, you know, uh, talking to uh, uh, Danielle Smith uh, out west uh, and doing when we would simulcast the shows. She knew more about Line 5 than all of us. Yeah, and that's picking up steam. Uh, anybody, you know, I talked about this now two weeks ago. We've talked about it eight weeks ago. Uh, look, I can only tell people what's going to happen. Um, and as accurate as my price and predictions, Castellina are. Um, I can tell you that these things will come to pass. And by that point, people will be, it will be too late. But I think right now our fixation is COVID for good reasons. Our, our, yeah. and our, our, our security blanket has been the cost of real estate. Everywhere you go, it's going through the roof. Uh, we have a bubble. So everyone thinks let the good times roll. Lot, lots of money out there. There's no cost or consequence for anything that we're doing. This is like a replay of 1977, 78 all over again. So that by 1980, 81, when the full effect of the recession hits everybody and you've got, you know, 15% unemployment, you've got uh, stagflation, you've got uh, massive interest rates, uh, you know, moving up, all of these things, uh, people have been scratching their heads saying, how did we let this happen? Well, you know, it's by not listening, it's by not caring. And I don't blame people. I see a lot of this coverage of what happened with the Fraser Institute's report yesterday being covered extensively in Western Canada. As soon as I got to Ontario... Nothing. Zip. Yeah, Except for yeah. chorus radio, no one really ca- is paying attention to this. It's and like it's, the same it's, nobody it's, is paying attention. It's like no. nobody's paying attention that we're 54th to 64th in the world for getting a shot. You cannot find those numbers in Canadian media. They're not no, there can't. for some reason. Look, I don't know if it's a conspiracy of silence or people are just plain ignorant. But i, I got to tell you, I, I'm becoming a little bit more testy with some of the media. And not you guys, of course but with a lot of the other ones and saying there was a time where they were a little bit more objective and they're willing to look at things and, you know, have the people's back right now. It's all about uh, pushing the climate agenda. And unfortunately, while that's an important issue, 
It's certainly not the prevalent issue in Canada, and it certainly isn't something that we can simply put aside and say, oh, well, let's whatever the government says is fine, and let's uh, on the side hold out our hand because we know the federal government's going to be giving us a few dollars for media. I, there's a real uh, possibility of major cynicism to develop in this country, and I think uh, it won't be the West I'm worried about. It won't be Quebec I'm worried about after they learn that there's no 13 billion bucks for equalization now that they've destroyed or helped destroy the energy sector. Ontario here is going to take a massive hit. Uh, you and I talked a couple of weeks ago about um, hydro rates. Wait until people start seeing the bills coming in. And now that February 22nd was the last day we had the uh, the uh, COVID uh, rates of hydro at 8.5 cents going up to 17, in some cases as high as 21. You could be looking at a situation where this month's bill for your electricity is as much as 100 to $150 higher than what you were paying just a month ago. I think it's going to start to wake people up finally. And, of course, that doesn't do it. Then in two weeks from today, when Trudeau's April Fool's uh, in- increase in carbon taxes takes effect uh, and we move to $1.30 to $1.35 a litre, maybe then and only then will we get people starting to pay attention. Uh, very limited time left now, Dan. How Why is gasoline up right now? Uh, OPEC uh, restriction production isn't as high. Demand is uh, is moving much higher. Of course, we're seeing that uh, not just in the United States, but around the world. A lot of moving parts. The rest of the world is starting to get out of COVID. Canada's a laggard, obviously being number 68 or 69 or whatever number it is. Uh, the demand is much higher than uh, the supply. And so for that reason, get ready for much higher prices. I wouldn't be surprised to see here in the hammer uh, prices hitting $1.45 this summer. That's amazing, Dan, because I thought the demand for oil after COVID-19 was dead. <laughs> that's what I was told. Look, nobody's buying oil anymore. It's like $2 a barrel. That's right. What's They're going on? <laughs> I hear you. Yep, take away six, uh, 6%. Uh, so take away all the vehicles on the road today, and you still have only a 6% drop in the amount of oil needed uh, around the world. Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP, consumer affairs critic, and Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Hey, take care, Scott. Cheers. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.